Thank you for listening to the Austin Connection podcast. The Austin Connection is also a free newsletter and community on Substack. Check it out at austinconnection.substack.com. See you there. The change is coming, but how can we bring people along? Because you, it's scary to say to somebody, okay, you don't own Austin. I know you're Caucasian. I know you're a woman. And I know you might just want to tackle the stories of love and romance in these novels, but there's something else going on. Jane lived in a time of extreme upheaval. And if you know you say you love Austin, then you don't have to love all Austin. And some of Austin and something that's going on with Austin is not pretty. Damianne Scott is an educator, writer, and speaker in the Jane Austen community. She's an adjunct professor of literature in Cincinnati, Ohio. She's also the host of the popular Facebook page, Black Girl Loves Jane. She's working on a very intriguing project right now, rewriting the story of Jane Austen's persuasion into the setting of an African-American megachurch. This is the Austin Connection. In her book project, Damian Scott makes Anne Elliott a PK, or preacher's kid. And as Dr. Cornell West has pointed out in a legendary talk at the JASNA annual general meeting of 2012, Jane Austen was also a PK, or a preacher's kid. This is a world that Damian Scott knows well. It's a world I also am not unfamiliar with. I also, as it happens, am a PK. So I really enjoyed this conversation with Damian Scott. We talked about Jane Austen's last novel, The Story of Persuasion, and what it is about that story that resonates for her and what it all has to do with an African-American megachurch. Here's our conversation. Let me talk a little bit first about persuasion. So why do you love the story of persuasion? Well, I love the story of persuasion, I guess, at least twofold. It was my first Jane Austen novel that I read in college. Um, the first one I did a paper on. So that is one reason why I loved it. Second, I do enjoy the movie, the one done in, I believe, in 1997 with Siren Hines. Mm-hmm. Um the BBC, um, is one of my favorite adaptions. And then I like it now um, because, A, Anne Elliot is very adaptable for any woman today who is over a certain age, who is not married, who has no children, and who has come to bear the responsibility either willingly or unwillingly to be kind of the caregiver of their parents and their finances, um, the dependable child um, in the household. And I find that very relatable to me um, because I am not married, have no children and have become the pseudo caregiver, financial, you know, responsibility person um, in my family. So, and speaks to me. The other thing is I think that persuasion in itself, again, is very adaptable to, to what I'm doing now with my, my rewriting of it and modernizing it. And so for Anne, Anne, she's always criticized by her father for the way she looks. 
there's that famous scene where you know she's talking and he's like oh you, your skin looks better today have you changed cold cream you know and so <laughs> or he's he talks about the naval officers and he talks about um admiral croft and how you know he looks pretty well for somebody who was in the navy you know and it, um, it's very funny like it's a source of humor but also it's just you feel Anne's pain i mean any feel, yeah. any woman in the world feels Anne's pain with all of this. Yes. But you're, we're also laughing at it, which is so genuine. But we're laughing at it because he's totally ridiculous. So <laughs> you're like, really? Yeah. Um, so it is very funny. And so my my adaption is not is a little focus on physicality. So my Anne not necessarily has a skin issue, but she has a weight issue. And then because she's in this community, um, um, a small community, well, not a small community, but anyone who knows about African-American megachurches, yes. uh, which is where my takes place, even mm -hmm. though they might be 1,500 to 3,000, 10,000 people, 10,000 people you know, or 5,000 people can still pretty much know all your business because it's a small community in a very large, possibly large society. So... So um, let me, I have to ask you more about this. I want to hear, keep hearing you, Dana, okay. talk about this retelling since you've gone into this. Um, but I will just say, I grew up going to uh, black churches and okay. I grew up going to mega churches, but never <laughs> a black mega church. Uh, well, they're so, actually not very many. <laughs> well, they're more yes. now. Yes, they're, yes. Well, that's, so I'm fascinated with, you know, a lot of, I, I grew up in a sort of evangelical background. So um, I, I didn't love the mega churches when I was <laughs> attending them when I'm I was in college. Yeah. And so, well, so can, I want to hear more about the retelling. I don't want to interrupt you, but can okay. you, can, can we just uh, pause for a second and you tell me how, you, why that setting, why the black mega church? Well, well, because I'm, I'm familiar with it. It, it yeah. is, you know, my world, um, I've, I grew up in church, I went to church, I go to church now. Um, and so, though my church was not a mega church in the terms of how we think of it, um, when I was growing up, it had about 500 members. And at that time, so this was like mid 80s, that mm -hmm. was a that was a big number of people. Yeah. Um, and then my pastor, he was the head bishop of the state of Ohio for our denomination. So, okay. so I'm very used to that church dwelling state where everybody knows your business yeah. and, um, you know, what it means to be a preacher's kid, though I wasn't a preacher's kid, um, what it means to be a preacher's kid, a deacon's kid, um, someone of authority's kid, everybody talking about what's going on in everybody else's lives. It is a village mentality, mm -hmm. um, even though it's a church. And I and thought that was very adaptable for Anne. Yeah, that's so true. And it is like a, a village. You were starting to say everybody knows each other's business. It's, it's like the four and 20 country families. But I love what you're saying. There's there's a hierarchy. Uh -huh. um, it's That can be a very wonderful, close community. It can also be a fairly oppressive community. Yes. And nobody sh shows this better than Jane Austen, right? Right. <laughs> I just have to say, Jamie, I, you know, so you were going to mega churches in the 80s. I remember going to the mega churches in the 80s and this was in Atlanta. Uh -huh. I would not have stepped stepped foot in there without like makeup, hair. Oh yeah. <laughs> the whole 
thing. And I kind of resented that, you know. So what was your experience? What has your been, ex- been your experience in the church? So so some of it, not as, not as deeply, I think I am critiquing the church as a whole, mm-hmm. as, as maybe the pastors as a whole, or this particular okay. pastor. Um, but yeah, I went to, you had to be, you know, well, I came from a denomination for a long time. You didn't wear makeup. So that wasn't a problem, but you know, we were dressed. You didn't go to church in Mm -hmm. pants. You didn't, um, you were put together your hair, you know, no jeans. There was no such thing as jeans. You wear jeans to church on a Sunday morning. Um, on Bible study night, you could wear jeans, but if you were a woman, you wear a skirt. Um, you didn't wear pants. Um, to church. Um, I didn't resent it because that's all I knew. Um, I didn't feel oppressed by it, especially when I was young. I didn't feel oppressed by it. My friends were there. My family was there. That's where I participated things and participated in things um, where I somewhat cultivated, you know, my speaking abilities or my writing abilities. So I didn't find it oppressive to me growing up at all. And then as I grew up, some things did alter and change. I did start seeing things a little different because then I realized, you know, church is also a business. And so sometimes with all businesses, just like with all denominations, you know, not everybody, you know, are preaching one thing and doing the other. Um, And so there is a little greed aspect to some churches, not all of course, so, and then also with this um, this hierarchy, there is a power trick that I don't know necessarily if, particularly in African-American churches, that may not be um, seen in other churches. For African-Americans in particularly, especially for a long time, because of the the how the system was set up in America, systematically the racism, the uh, church was the only place where black people could have clout. So if you are a pastor, if you're a deacon, if you're a missionary, if you're, you have power, you have clout, you know, what you say goes. And so if you are the child of a pastor, a bishop or whatever, people are looking at you to expect you to act a certain way, be a certain way, do things a certain way, because you are not only reflective, you, you know, of Christ, of course, but you're also reflected of that power structure. If you do something, you are challenging that power structure, that whole thing might, you know, fall down, you know? And so that's why I thought it was very analogous to Sir Walter because my character, he is a, a pastor of a mega church, um, but he also has some gambling issues and some, some spending habit issues. And he puts his church into debt where he's almost losing the church and therefore losing his power and his cloud in the community. And then he has these children and one of them happened to be Anne, who though she is fiscally responsible and capable and efficient and, and knows how to run things, he doesn't see her value because she doesn't represent what he thinks a daughter should look like physically um, or, or pass his daughter physically. She some with her intelligence, she's kind of challenging his wisdom or his advice or his thought process. And so that makes it really Austin-like, even mm. though it's 2021. That's so great. You're, everything you're describing is this character that's so Austin, a character, 
a strong woman, a smart woman who's undermined and undervalued and just how frustrating that can be. But Jane Austen <laughs> just shows people how to go forward. What else? So that's kind of what appeals to you about the story uh -huh. of persuasion. You mentioned a teacher encouraged you. Uh -huh. um, in your Facebook Live, you called it an adult fairy tale in a way yeah. because she does persevere, doesn't she? And is yeah. gracious. How does she get by? How does she survive? And why is this an adult fairy tale? Well, I guess the fairy tale part is because there is no necessarily fairy godmother or magic happens. It's just that Anne, you know, kind of realizes that what she wants is important and valued and she should like move on it. I mean, the only reason why she doesn't marry Wentworth in the first place is because Lady uh, Russell and her family and the small community that she's involved in is like, no, he has no money. You know, he doesn't represent what we represent being gentry being you know sir walter is a baron um so yeah you, you you can't marry him he has no money and of course during that time having money was the most important thing in a marriage you're not marrying somebody necessarily for love you're married for somebody for for connections growing the family making sure you're not starving especially if you're a woman so or your or your sisters are not starving. So this is what you're you're getting married for. You're marrying for the benefit of, of society and particularly your small society. And so what Anne does realize at the end is bump that. No, I'm going to do what I want to do, where I am back, where my voice is heard, and I'm gonna marry this man that I love that I should have probably married eight years ago, <laughs> but I listened to y'all. And so I think the magic is that she realizes that her own her own work and that mm -hmm. there was somebody who already recognized it and she kind of let it slip away and she gets a second chance to rectify it, which is something most of us do not get, that second chance to rectify a decision that we made incorrectly. And I think that's why it's a fairy tale. All right. And you're also talking about, you know, the hardships that Anne faces. Uh, I feel like a lot of people who don't, do you find yourself having to explain to people about why you love Jane Austen, that it is about hardship? It is about endurance and survival. Yeah. It's not just about finding somebody to, you know, to marry and carry you off, that it is about, you know, what it is like to get through life with this, with responsibility, and how to uh -huh. do it graciously and how to hopefully how to find happiness i mean I, I get you know everyone you know who who are my friends or they just don't understand it at all um they think of, of austin as you know the dresses the balls the bonnets um and and it is let's not get it twisted it, it, it part of it is that and part of that is the appeal for people who read it today or look at the movies today it's it's the romance of, because, I mean, let's just tell the truth, all the major novels that she wrote, all the main characters get her man, they get married. We may not see the marriage, but we know they get married. So for some people, that is the appeal of Austen. That is what they look at for Austen. That's why they read Austen, and that's all they want. But, and that's fine. Um, others, like myself, I'm interested in also the other themes that are going on. Um, 
the nuances because the nuances of the dance. Well, why are they doing that particular dance? You know, you know, why can't women inherit, you know, from their fathers? Why can they cannot work? What was going around in England at that time to make it the way it is? That is what interests me also. And so in the community itself, the Austin community, I'm probably rather new to the community in itself, though I've loved Austin for quite a bit of time. My biggest push is just trying to get them to understand not only the historical, which many of them already do, because that's why they're Jainites and they really delve in and they're really scholarly about it, where I'm not as scholarly about a lot of the issues. Um, but my biggest push is just to see that it is it's text, it's um, ideas that are open to to all people. And it's not just a British or Caucasian or a woman um, field of study that they should be interested in, that it, it can be open to other people mm-hmm. who might not necessarily have been in the thought of or the mind of Austin when she wrote those novels. Well, I love that. And I want to hear more about that, Damie. So you started the Facebook page, Black Girl mm-hmm. Loves Jane, to basically, to do what? To make, to kind of put a stamp on that? Yeah. Um, well, it, it initially started just something, I guess, really for me to do, um, where I could like share like Jane Austen's, you know, quotes and wits and quirks and all that. And then- When was the, that? Such, um, that was in August of 2018. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's very, yeah, it's pretty new. It's just something to like put, you know, a quote mm-hmm. of the day or a quote of the week. And then I would share something that was happening in my life that that wisdom either expresses or answers for things like that. And then my goal was to then have other people then share their experience that is similar to the quote that I had placed out there today. Um, and I called it Black Girl of Jane just because I'm a Black girl. So, so I was a Black girl who loves Jane, which is an oddity. It's it's very, it's not completely like not heard of. I've, you know, I've meet, met and seen other um, women of color who who love Jane. But for my my circle, I am the odd, I am the odd man out. And even in college, you know, here I am, you know, trying to get my master's degree in English and I am the only African American who's sitting in a, you know, a Victorian or, you know, class or British romantic class, you know, trying to read Shelley and Austin and talk about these things and I'm the only one there. So um, I just kind of- The world is going to need more of you. So so I I think you're in a very good place. You know, and I think a lot of us are, I mean, I'm not, I say us, I'm really kind of outside the community, but I'm really glad that you are here and saying what you're saying. So that's how it started. This is the Austin Connection. We're talking with educator and writer Damian Scott. She's an adjunct professor at the University of Cincinnati's Blue Ash College, and she is the host of the popular Facebook page, Black Girl Loves Jane. Damian Scott says that as a student of 19th century literature, which she has loved since high school, she often has found herself the only black student in the room. 
So she loves the non-traditional casting of shows like Bridgerton and Sanditon, but has also watched and addressed the backlash that has arisen from these productions. An article Damian Scott contributed to jasna.org or the Jane Austen Society of North America online addressed the PBS series Sanditon's pineapple controversy. Some viewers felt that using the pineapple emoji as a fan symbol for the show was insensitive to the weight carried by that symbol, a symbol of colonialism and racism. Damian Scott weighed in, and she weighs in here. In the next part of this conversation, Damian Scott says she hopes people and the community of Austin lovers and fans will continue to grow and to understand that, as she says, Austin does not want to be put up on a pedestal. Jane Austen, she says, wants to be among the people. I love that. We started out talking about the classic novels like Austen, but also Thomas Hardy that Damian Scott discovered as a high school student. And it's what started her on the journey to discovering and teaching that the classics are for everyone. Here's the rest of our conversation. So it's not just Austen. I like, I love Hardy. I was, I was presented to Harding when I was 14 um, Mm -hmm. in school. So Harding was who I started off with because my teacher did not believe that I would like Austin. Cause he was like, oh, if you like Harding, you're not gonna like Austin cause Austin is happy and they get married at the end. And if you read any uh, popular Harding, I mean, he has comedies as well, but if you read Tessa the Duberville's or Mary Casterbridge, those are not happy endings books. No. Um, and so, so he's like- <laughs> Judy no way, Obscure, like, I remember. Judy so kind of is the worst one. I love it, but it's, it's the worst one. And so, so, so he was just like, you're never going to like Austin. And so I didn't. I didn't, not that I didn't like Austin. I just never attempted it. He always had it on a reading list. We never could read anything modern. So every book we read in high school from ninth to 12th grade, when we had to do a book report, um, was the classics. So we're going, you know, up to maybe 1930s. That was it, you know. Everything else, you know, was, you know, Harding or Elliot or Dickens or Austin. So I was like, okay, this is a world I'm not used to. I had never been introduced to classics before. So here we go. My first book I read was Tessa's and Duberville's. And I was like, this is what's happening in England in the early 1900s, late 1800s. Okay, this is my kind of place. So then I read Harding and then high school, college. So that was the start of Black Women Love Jane. And then it is eventually over time has evolved to just trying to make the case in whatever small way I can that Austin is not just for Caucasian people, that Austin is not just for people from Britain, that there are other cultures that can benefit from the lessons of Austin or from other classic literature um, just as well, because anything I, I deem to be classic is something that is relatable to everyone. If you're willing to do the teaching to make it relatable. I think part of the issues, especially in high schools today, and maybe in some college, I don't know, because um, it's been a while, is that we teach these these books, particularly these books that are in the canon, um, as unrelatable to anyone who's not white or young, or you know, uh, in who is you know not white or who's old, you know, too young or whatever. And we say, oh, you, you're never going to understand it. And really, what it is is the teachers are going to have to 
figure out a way to make it relatable and teachable for whatever generation they are presented with. And so part of my reason for writing my version of Persuaded, part of my reason for why I read other modernization versions of Austin's novels and other classic novels is because I have this hope or want to have this hope that it's reachable even to this generation. And that if we don't learn how to make it reachable to the next generation, they're going to die. These classics, they're not gonna be classics anymore. They're not gonna to wanna to teach Austin or Dickens or, or Toni Morrison, or they're not gonna to wanna to teach them anymore because they don't feel they are relevant to today. And so books like, you know, hopefully books like mine, but also um, Pride by Ebo Zoboy. The boy. boy, thank you. The boy mm -hmm. is giving that attempt and making that way. And and also Unmarriageable, which I just read too, as well. It's yes, making so that way. Yeah. That yeah. that it 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 is so relatable. These are my people. Even if it is, you know, 1789 when it's written here and I'm reading it in 2021. These are my people. This is what's going on in my life and my world too. And she's speaking to me. And so that is what my goal has. <laughs> awesome. Listeners can't Thank hear you. that I'm snapping at Damie. <laughs> I love it. It just makes Austin so much richer when people realize, like, I feel like they have Damie with Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. um, so I think you're, hopefully you're right. Hopefully this is, and I am too, because I hope have the same hope that it's just a matter of imagination. It's just a matter of changing the way right. we see it, changing the way we teach it. I always try to, even with my students, because I teach, I teach English composition, but I have taught, you know, upper, upper level classes as well about literature. And I'm always trying to get my students to understand that period just means it happened at a, a certain period of time. And, but the themes and experiences that we are having are the same themes and experiences that they'll be having 75 years from now and the way that they were having 75 years ago. If you get through all that superficial stuff. Right. And yes, you might have to practice some of the language because Shakespeare is no easy man by any means. Mm -hmm. But the themes, the lessons, really what he was saying is just as modern today as anything else. You know, and it's interesting, we're talking about Shakespeare, and I find this happens a lot that we're talking about Shakespeare uh -huh. because there's, there's no one who compares. So Shakespeare's stories play, literally play well. And Austin's stories, though, also play well. So they're really great for adaptations. You're doing a retelling, mm -hmm. setting it in a different setting. So they're great for that. And so a lot of the things that you're talking about, the themes about superficiality and, you know, just the attention to outward appearance mm -hmm. um, and that kind of toxicity yes. is very much there. And then the, the you know, the the loss that Anne is feeling and all of that comes through. But let me just ask you, Damie, what would you like to see in any kind of persuasion adaptation? What do you think makes it work for today? Because there are also two films coming out. There is, and one I'm really excited about because one is going to be a colorblind or a th um, non-traditional casting is what they're calling Non-traditional casting where uh, the Wentworth play, uh, character is going to be played by a person of color. Oh, is he's it Cosmo going... Jarvis? Yes. Okay, cool. Yes, so he's a, 
he's going to be playing Wentworth. And then Mr. Golding, Henry Golding, who I adore, he is going to be playing uh, Mr. Elliot and um, Cousin Elliot, I guess we could call him. And um, when they first came out, I was like, no, he should be Wentworth. <laughs> so yeah. it's non-traditional casting. And so that's what I was excited about, that we had that happening um, in the era, of course, of Bridgerton which I also love, and I, um, but also got a lot of flack. Um, those who, and who are Jane Austen-like fanatics did not appreciate um, Bridgerton. Some have not appreciated the casting for this new persuasion, and it's because of the non-traditional casting. So for the past, you know, six months or so, I've been doing some talks and things like that. I did one for Race and Regency for the Jane Austen and Company, Yes, I um, loved that. Where, you know, I'm pushing this idea, you know, that why not? Black people are there. Why are we acting like Black people are not there? Are people of color there? Because there were people from South Asia, India, were there during that time. So I don't understand why people get upset of, about this notion that's happening as if the, as is often was this historical document that could not be altered. It's a, it's fiction. <laughs> it's fiction. Everything in it is fiction. Now, yes, it's England during that time. There is the wars going on at that time. All that is happening. Don't get it twisted. Snapping again. <laughs> <laughs> so I know this is happening, but again, it's still a fictionalized world. Some of the cities don't even exist really in England. Uh, and these are fictionalized stories. And so the hullabaloo about Bridgerton, particularly, that's, it's the greatest thing right now, is it's somewhat disconcerting to me, uh, which is why I guess Black Girl with Jane is why I'm pushing this, because I just don't understand it, that icing out of other cultures who are sometimes forced to read Austin, but they can't be in Austin, they can't be in an Austin film, but you're going to make them read it as part of the literary canon that you have in school, but then they can't be in it, it doesn't make sense to me. So, um, I'm really excited about that. And I'm looking forward not only for persuasion to do it, but I'm looking forward to a time where it's not a big deal. Um, so I, that is what I'm looking forward to, not only with persuasion, but all awesome novels and really, you know, all classic novels where it's just not a big deal. And, and I don't always go into it, you know, by any means, looking at any kind of, um, a film or a book and be like, oh, there's no black people in it, so I'm not gonna read it. That's or, or people of color. That is not me at all. Um, but I do when I'm looking at it and as I get more past just, you know, the the surface stuff, but to the actual discussions about modernization and race and classism, it it's there's discussions to be had. Here's a great example of, you know, you can have in your class. What is wrong with this scene or what's wrong with this this theme that is being carried out through this period why are why did it why was it established and what's wrong with it and how are we how have we rectified or have we rectified you know in 21st century england or america are they still classism that's going on are they still based on race are they still based on this so i am not a proponent of either of saying okay you can never cast anything that's got white people in you but well, I am just saying that, like you said, the new normal has to come about where it's not such a big deal. Um, I, I don't know 
if you know, but I published an article in JANSA. Yes. Um, yes. Um, called the, about the pineapple. The, uh, pineapple. And Thank so, you for reminding me. Yes, I did see you're that. Yes. <laughs> well, one of the things I mentioned is, and, and that's part of the problem I said, is that there is this need to hold on very tightly for many British citizens, but it's the same here in America as well, to this history that is not active. So this yes. is why people get upset with Bridgerton um, or non-traditional casting in some Dickens movies and stuff is because they're holding on to this idea of what they believe they are. And even though their history was told to them incorrectly, because history is told by the winners, not the losers, um, the challenge of it that's coming about in these last few years, it's very disconcerting for people. So this mm -hmm. is why people have a cow when you're going to have a multi-ethnic person play Wentworth. This is why people are upset that you have as the high royal in a drama going on in 1813 Regency be a black queen. Mm -hmm. this, this is why um, people had a cow when the Jane Austen Museum said, oh, we're going to establish and talk about how Jane lived during this time of slavery. Mm -hmm. And and people have a cow about it. It's because it's challenging an idea and a history that is so ingrained in them that who will I be if I am not the owner of, you know, Shakespeare or Austin or, you know, the Bible or, or this great, you know, for us in, in America, this great Southern tradition. Who, 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 who are we if I don't have this? Or and you're telling me that I was wrong or that my ancestors were wrong for what they did back then. And so therefore you're now deeming me to be wrong. The change is coming, but how can we bring people along? Because you, it's scary to say to somebody, okay, you don't own Austin. I know you're Caucasian. I know you're a woman. And I know you might just want to tackle the stories of love and romance in these novels, but there's something else going on. Jane lived in a time of extreme upheaval. And if, you know, you say you love Austin, then you don't have to love all Austin. And some of Austin and something that's going on with Austin is not pretty. Yes. Not necessarily with her because she was a supporter of abolition. But what was going on around her was not pretty. And Absolutely. it's not all about the balls and the dresses. Mm -hmm. and, and that's scary for people. And so my hope is also that we can just have these dialogues where people don't feel like we're attacking or trying to take away something from them, but instead understand and come to realize that we're trying to add to something that they already have. What would you like to see you, you, you being greeted with trying to expand the readership and expand mm -hmm. the inclusivity in the community? Mm -hmm. How inclusive are you finding this community? And what would you like to see in our conversations going forward to be more equitable and inclusive in our conversations about Jane Austen? I guess what I really would like to see in the future is just this um, real true understanding that people of color are not trying to like what we've just discussed, invade people's space. What we're trying to do is say that we were always there and that we want to be seen and that we want to be accepted. Now, does that mean you have to go back and change 250 years of history? Well, not 
No, I mean, you know, you can never change that slavery existed. You can never change that there was a feudal system and there was a land and gentry system. You can't change it. But the idea that we ignore populations that are there so that we can be this exclusive club, that is a problem. So um, hopefully the future is that when we have these discussions and have these conferences and have these things that we're that we are interested in the needlepointing and the dancing and the foods that Austin ate, that we are interested, but we're also interested in the history of what was going on with the slave trade that was happening during that time. And we're also interested in how they were treating women. And we're also interested in, in talking about what they were doing with the, 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 the tea that they were taking from India. And that we're also interested in in all these other maybe somewhat earthy discussions um, about Austin and that they're just as prevalently produced and advertised and populated and attended as you know the latest um, discussion about how to, to make a bonnet. I'm for you learning how to make the bonnet. I wanna learn how to make the bonnet too. But I also wanna know that Austin, we put Austin on a pedestal. Austin does not want to be on the pedestal. We put her on there and we make her so unreachable. She can only be for this. She can only be talked about this. She can only be presented this way. As long as we keep Austin on that pedestal, she's going to die. Her words, her wisdom is going to die. Because the one thing I guess our, my generation, generation X, Y, for millennial, we're not looking for people to put on pedestals. We want people who want to be among the people. And Austin is among the people if you let her be. All right. If you let her, she'll be there. That's great. Thank you. Preach. (laughs) (laughs) I love it, Jamie. Thank you so much. I wish I just had a few more minutes. um, No problem. Thank you. But uh, I'll keep in touch. I'll let you know when this comes out. Okay? Great. I look forward to it. Okay, thank you, Jake. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 That was writer and educator Damian Scott on how Jane Austen is for everyone. Damian Scott is the host of the Facebook page Black Girl Loves Jane, and she teaches literature at the University of Cincinnati Blue Ash. Her novel in progress is persuaded. It's due out next year from Meriton Press. That's the Austin Connection for this edition. Find us online at austinconnection.substack.com. You can sign up for free and get the podcast, conversations, controversies, romance, discussions, all of it dropped right into your inbox. Sign up at austinconnection.substack.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Austin Connect and Facebook and Instagram at Austin Connection. Stay in touch with us. We'll see you there.